the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Has the Church a visible head on earth? The Church has a visible head on earth. The Bishop of Rome, who is the Vicar of Christ. Why is the Bishop of Rome the head of the Church? The Bishop of Rome is the head of the Church because he is the successor of St. Peter, whom Christ appointed to be the head of the Church. How do you know that Christ appointed St. Peter to be the head of the Church? I know that Christ appointed St. Peter to be the head of the Church because Christ said to him, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And to thee I will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Well, it's certain that our Lord made St. Peter the head of the apostles. When St. Peter was put to death, he was crucified in the year 67. He was crucified upside down, actually. He felt he wasn't worthy to die in the same way that our Lord died. So they put the cross in upside down. Well, when he died, St. John the Evangelist was still alive. But nevertheless, St. Peter's successor as Bishop of Rome was taken to be the head of the church. And so it's always been. St. Peter's successors have been reckoned to be head of the church. What's the Bishop of Rome called? He's called Pope, which word signifies father. In Italian, it's Papa, you know, Daddy. And that's how we get our word Pope is the Pope the spiritual father of all Christians. The Pope is the spiritual father of all Christians. Is he the shepherd and teacher of all Christians? Let me read the answer to that. The Pope is the shepherd and teacher of all Christians because Christ made St. Peter the shepherd of the whole flock when he said, Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. He also prayed that his faith might never fail and commanded him to confirm his brethren. Where I live, we've got a great mural I'm in the chaplaincy for overseas students, I think I said. And we have a lot of murals, because the first Christmas I was staying there, I had a Muslim staying with me the first year, and very ecumenically, he bought the words, Merry Xmas, in large cardboard letters, and stuck them on the wallpaper with Bostic. So when the decorations came down, of course the paper ripped off. So we had bare walls, and we, at least one bare wall, and we started having murals. And we've got a lot now. Anyhow, this mural, it's about Moses. And he's having a sort of confrontation with uh, some of the Jews. And there's Mount Sinai in the background. And there's a sort of plaque up there. And it says, Why Moses? And this is how it goes. Some 3,000 years ago, the people of God were making their way from Egypt to the Promised Land. Moses was leading them. Indeed, no one but he could lead them, because God had chosen him for the task. However, human nature being what it is, there were those who resented his leadership and would not follow him. This was so much the worse for them. They failed to achieve the salvation God was offering his people. They died in the desert. To turn aside from the leader God gives you is to, is to turn aside from God. Not that Moses did not have his faults, he was only human but his personal merits were not very relevant. What counted was the fact that God had chosen him. Centuries later, around the year 30, God again chose a leader for his people. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep, he said to Simon Peter. And since then, Peter's successors have been to the faithful of their day, what Moses was to the faithful of his day, their God-appointed leader. However, human nature being what it is, and that's where it ends. Human nature being what it is, 
there'll always be people who will not follow authority, even when that authority comes from God. They want to go their own way. Well, you can go back behind Moses, if you like, and go back before time began to heaven, when some of the angels would not accept God's holy will, and they rebelled, and they became the devil and the demons. And so there is this awful possibility of using our free will to turn away from God. We now come on to this business of infallibility. And this is a big sort of bugbear for some people. Actually, it was what made me become a Catholic. I'd always realized that Jesus is God. And when the idea of infallibility was presented to me, it seemed obvious. If Jesus is God, which he is, and if he founds a church, which he has done, it seemed obvious that that church cannot start teaching error. The fact that St. Peter denied our Lord and all the apostles packed up and fled when our Lord needed them shows that they stayed merely human and able to sin. Infallibility is not impeccability. Impeccability means you can't sin. But infallibility, it's got quite a narrow sort of meaning. All it means is that in matters of, of faith and morals, God won't allow his church to make a mistake. It's something negative. Inspiration is something positive. The Bible's inspired. God inspired the sacred writers to write what they did write. But infallibility is negative in that all it means is that God will not allow his shepherd whom he's placed in charge he won't allow that shepherd to lead his flock into poisoned pastures when I became a Catholic really it was just about everything everything in the church I didn't like from from devotion to our blessed lady to, to second collections but one thing I just couldn't get round and that was this business of infallibility and so I reckon I had to become a Catholic and then, well, eventually things got sorted out. Anyhow, to get back to our catechism. We just read the definition. Is the Pope infallible? Yes, the Pope is infallible. What do you mean when you say that the Pope's infallible? When I say that the Pope's infallible, I mean that, that the Pope cannot err when, a shepherd and teacher of all Christians, he defines a doctrine concerning faith or morals to be held by the whole Church. Well, that's infallibility. And I think if it's understood in that correct sense, in that technical sense, the Pope could have wrong judgments about all sorts of matters, political, economic, international. Okay, that doesn't matter. I mean, there were many Popes who reckoned that to be a real Pope and to run the church properly, you had to have a lot of property and be very rich. I mean, the Popes owned half Italy. And there were saints, even, who reckoned that this was quite necessary. I suppose it was about 1,500 years ago, but 200 years ago it wasn't necessary. And so we'll allow that God would permit the Holy Father to make mistakes in matters like that. But when it comes to matters of faith or morals, then we know that the Pope can't make mistakes. Has the Church of Christ any marks by which we may know her? 
The Church of Christ has four marks by which we may, we may know her. She is one, holy, Catholic, she is apostolic. This comes in the creed that we say at Mass on Sundays. How is the Church one? Well, in a way, the Church is one, first of all, because she's something living. Everything, every living thing has to, has to be one. A tree, well, you could cut branches off a tree, but it, it's smaller, but it's still one living thing. You can cut all the branches off, it's still one living thing. You can cut the trunk off, but what's left is one living thing. Only when the tree dies and starts rotting, then you say, no, it's no longer one. And so with the church, the church can have many people leave her. She could have most of the faithful drift away. It wouldn't impair her unity. She must be one because she's Christ. She's one with Christ. How's the answer go? The church is one because all her members agree in one faith, have all the same sacrifice and sacraments, and are all united under one head. We have the one faith. There's all sorts of arguments go on, but nevertheless, when it comes to what's essential, we believe the same things. And if people don't believe, of course, then they, they cease to be Catholic. Have all the same sacrifice, that means the holy sacrifice of the Mass, the same sacraments, we have seven sacraments, we'll be coming to them later, and all united under one head, under the Holy Father, the Pope. Uh, there are many different rites in the Church, many different parts of the Church. They say Mass in all sorts of different ways. But nevertheless, wherever you are in the world, if you're a Catholic, ultimately, uh, you're under the Pope. How's the Church holy? Well, basically the Church is holy because she's one with Jesus. Where I am in, in the chaplaincy at Mass, we have perhaps people from a dozen, fifteen different races, nationalities gathered to Mass. And it's great to see them gathered from all over the world by the Holy Spirit, who's like the soul of the Church, all gathered into Christ, the Church is one with Jesus, and even though we are all sinners, nevertheless she's holy because of that. What's the answer, girl? It says the Church is holy because she teaches the holy doctrine, offers to all the means of holiness, and is distinguished by the eminent holiness of so many thousands of her children. Well, she teaches the holy doctrine. It does come from God. What I say, I hope I'll never say anything I make up, all I'm saying here is what I've learned has been handed down. It's doctrine that comes ultimately from God, so it must be holy. Offers to all the means of holiness, for the sacraments should make us holy. Mind you, of course, you look at us and you think, can it really be so? Well, the church has got sinners in it. When you think that Jesus came into this world for sinners, if he founds a church, you'd expect it to have sinners in it. You'd expect a hospital to have sick people. A hospital with no sick people would be a funny sort of hospital. And if you found a church where there are no sinners, you'd have to say, this can't be the true church. Because our Lord came for sinners. He said his church would be like a net with good fish and bad fish, like a field growing up with wheat and weeds. And so fact, the fact that there are sinners in the church doesn't mean to say the church is not the true church. 
the church is holy because she's somehow one with Christ. Also, she has always had many great saints. At the moment I'm reading about Padre Pio. He was a Capuchin, a Franciscan in Italy. And for 50 years he had the wounds of Christ in his feet and hands and, and side. He lost about a cupful of blood every day, always in great pain. And the miracles told about him would fill books. Well, they do fill books, I suppose. He brought so many people back to God. And, uh, well, I'm just reading about it now. It's, it's really most striking. So there are always great saints in, in, in the church. And there always have been. In fact, the thing that surprises me, the Jews, they had their great saints. They had their miracle workers. They've not had anybody like that since Christ he was their last big miracle-working prophet. And in England, we had our great saints, and we had our miracle workers. But since the Reformation, there's been nobody. But in the Catholic Church, there's never ceased to be great saints. St. Vincent Ferrer, he raised many people to life. St. Francis Xavier, he raised people to life. Once in India, he was preaching in a village, and they just weren't interested. So a man had died a day or two before. He asked them to uncover the body, so they dug down and uncovered the body, and it had already started putrefying. He pointed this out to them. And then he turned to God and said, Dear God, please help these poor people to realize that what I'm telling them is the way to salvation. And the dead man became alive. Well, the whole area, of course, became, they all wanted baptism then. But God used this sort of thing to, to bring many people to the truth. Well, like he used Padre Pio's wounds to draw many people to realize that the supernatural does exist. And so even though you look at us and think, how can the church be holy? Nevertheless, the church, we say the church is holy in spite of us. What does the word Catholic mean? The word Catholic means universal. It's a Greek word. And it was used fairly early on to distinguish those Christians who stuck to the traditional teaching as against the Tertullianists that to see all sorts of early heresies, hundreds of them, uh, people who broke away. The first time it occurs, I think, is in St. Ignatius of Antioch, in a letter he wrote about the year 107. He talks about this universal church, meaning the Christians who were all owed allegiance to, to Rome. How is the Church Catholic or Universal? The Church is Catholic or Universal because she subsists in all ages, teaches all nations, and is the one ark of salvation for all. She's Catholic because she's for everybody. Whether you're a very clever person or very stupid, it's the same faith. You may be able to write books, or you may not be able to read, but it's the same faith. And it doesn't belong to any one sort of culture. Before the church was battered to death in China, the church looked, in China, the church looked completely Chinese. I mean, the churches looked like, you know, the, the Chinese style. Their statues, I mean, our Lord looked chi a Chinaman. Everything seemed Chinese about it. Their, their liturgy was somehow had a Chinese note about it. And in India, the same. 
I get Christmas cards from India. Our lady always looks like, a, like an, an Indian with a sort of red thing in the middle of her forehead. And it may seem to us that the church looks rather European, and I've heard Africans complain that it seems just too European. Well, for the first generation of missionaries, or the first generation that the church is in a country, it's bound to sort of look a bit imported. But give it time. I remember once I was very much helped by seeing a copy of a 13th century fresco uh, painting of our Lord. And he, he looked completely sort of English. And this helped me a great deal somehow. It helped me realize that Christ really became our cousin. And it's a great thing to read people who wrote about a thousand years ago or more. And we're on completely the same wavelength. We believe exactly the same things. Teaches all nations is the one ark of salvation for all. doesn't mean to say that you can't get to heaven if you're not a Catholic. But, well, it's the easy way to get to heaven. What I tell people is that if you're a good, holy person, whatever your religion, you'll get to heaven. But if you're a sinner, then you better become a Catholic. Because the Catholic Church exists to get sinners into heaven. I was in Lourdes last summer, and we went to a place right in the middle of the Pyrenees, where it was mountains covered with snow all around us. And on the other side of the mountains, it was Spain. Well, I suppose if you'd walked up the mountains and gone over the top and come down the other side, you'd been in Spain. But what an arduous way to get to Spain. The easy way to get to Spain would have been to go through one of the passes by road. And so to get to heaven, well, you can go anywhere. God loves everybody. But nevertheless, the Catholic Church, it is the easy way. Because God came to our help in our weakness with many sacraments. And these sacraments are geared one after the other to lift even the heaviest sinner right into heaven. And of course, but for the church, no one will get to heaven. The church is one with Christ. If God hadn't become man and died for us, no human being would be in heaven at all. And so if Christ didn't, didn't exist, and if the church, which is his body, didn't exist, then of course, heaven would be shut to all of us. How's the church apostolic? Well, we say our church is apostolic because all that we believe comes from the apostles. Mind you, it gets a bit more explicit as time goes on. But nevertheless, nothing's been made up. And if you go back to the roots of our faith, you can see it all there somehow in the apostolic teaching. An oak tree looks different from an acorn. And yet the oak tree's grown out of the acorn. And when the acorn starts, uh, you know, sort of putting out a shoot or two, as was already there, you can see the oak tree just beginning. And so we say that what we believe does come from the apostles. We haven't made anything up, and we haven't lost anything. And in fact, that is, is really the only claim of the Catholic Church. She would admit that uh, over the centuries her members have committed every imaginable sort of sin. But her one claim is this, that what God entrusted to the apostles, by way of sacraments and by way of doctrine, these are to be found in the Catholic Church, and only in the Catholic Church. Because her powers 
to forgive sin, her powers to turn bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. This authority over the mystical body of Christ and over the Eucharistic body of Christ, these powers God didn't entrust to the world at large. He entrusted them to the apostles and to nobody else. And from the apostles they've come down to our bishops and from the bishops they've come to our priests. And so that's how we reckon that our doctrine and our authority is, is apostolic. Jesus said to them, go and teach. And that mandate, that command, the church still hears it. What he said to them, she say, he's saying to the church today, we reckon, because we reckon our bishops have succeeded the apostles in their position and authority. So, that's the last of the marks of the church. Can the church err in what she teaches? The church can't err in what she teaches as to faith or morals, for she's our infallible guide in both. Well, I've already said that the church can err in many other ways. And she has done, I suppose, perhaps she is. But nevertheless, in what really counts, in what concerns faith or morals, we're absolutely safe in following the church's teaching. Incidentally, it's not the Bible which is our ultimate authority. Earlier on we had a question about how do you know what God's taught? I know it by the teaching authority of the Catholic Church. Not, I know what God's taught from the Bible. Sure, a lot of our faith is in the Bible. But the fact that there are, I don't know how many thousands of different Protestant sects, all based on the Bible, well, God, our Lord couldn't have wanted that. They say that within 80 years of Luther's death, there were as many different interpretations of what our Lord meant by this is my body. Our Lord couldn't have wanted that. The Church has only, has always taught only one thing. And there is this unity in our faith. And we have to remember that the Church was in existence and flourishing for a generation before word of the New Testament was written. And anyhow, who decided that the Epistle of Barnabas is not Scripture, but the Epistle to the Hebrews is? Or the Gospel of St. James is not Scripture, but Peter's second Epistle is? It's the Church which decided what is Scripture, what is inspired writing. Let's go back to the answer. I know that the Church cannot err in what she teaches because Christ promised that the gates of hell shall never prevail against his Church, that the Holy Spirit shall teach her all things, and that he himself will, will be with her all days, even to the consummation of the world. So that's the Church. Now we come on to the communion of saints. What do you mean by the communion of saints? By the communion of saints, I mean that all the members of the Church, in heaven, on earth, and in purgatory, are in communion with each other as being one body in Jesus Christ. If you're standing up close against a big tree, well, the roots are hidden in the ground, you can't see them. The trunk is right in front of you, and some of the branches above you are lost to sight. In the church, there are some members in purgatory, some living in this world, and some in heaven. And yet we're one body, 
and we're united because we live by the same life. How are the faithful on earth in communion with each other? The faithful on earth are in communion with each other by professing the same faith, obeying the same authority and assisting each other with their prayers and good works. For we have the same faith, we obey the same authority, our bishops and ultimately the Holy Father. We help each other with our prayers or we do pray for each other and good works. You can't have a, an earthquake in Guatemala or a flood in India or a famine in Peru without the next week there being all sorts of advertisements in our Catholic papers appealing for help. And they get a lot of help. And so we do help each other in that way. And the fact we don't help each other as much as we should, well, we're only human. In a body, in a human body, if there's one part sick, all the other parts come to the help. I remember during the war, when I was in Thailand on the railway, I had a big jungle sore on my ankle. And it just wouldn't heal up because we weren't getting enough to eat. And just about then I sold my watch and I got a lot of money for it. And I started eating about ten eggs a day. And the wound started healing up. And I thought to myself, this is very funny. I'm pushing eggs into one end of myself, and right down at the other end there's a wound healing. Well, that's how it is in a living body. When the Russians invaded Hungary, and there was a lot of suffering there, I knew a little girl who just made her first Holy Communion. And she started going to Mass every day. And after about a week, her father said to her, but why are you going to Mass every day? You don't have to go every day. And she said, I'm offering it for the Catholics in Hungary. Well, how that little girl knew that her Holy Communion in Scotland could help Catholics in Hungary, I don't know. It must have been the Holy Spirit. But it's a fact they can. We're all in the one body, and our prayers and our communions can certainly help other members of the body. And we can pray for these people even though we never see them. I met an old Pole once, and he told me that when he was a child in Poland, at the end of their family prayers, they always used to say a Hail Mary for the persecuted Irish. <laughs> so we do sort of think of each other and pray for each other. How are we in communion with the saints in heaven? We're in communion with the saints in heaven by honoring them as the glorified members of the church and also by praying to them and by their praying for us. Well, I wouldn't bother about that too much because this is a thing that comes with time. And I've been a Catholic for years before I started praying to any of the saints, I think. The way to start getting to love the people in heaven is by reading about them, like I'm reading, reading about Padre Pio now. To read the little flowers of St. Francis, it will certainly give you a great love of St. Francis. To read the autobiography of St. Therese, Story of a Soul, it'll, it'll certainly give you a great love for her. And when you realize what great saints they, they are, it leads you to want to be a bit less unlike them, to love God a bit more. And when you realize how close they are to God and how they must love you, you can ask them. Well, I've started every day now asking Padre Pierre to help me to be a good priest. I think if you try, you'll find it works. 
But as I say, it's a thing not to bother about if you find a sort of repugnance about anybody uh, being the object of your prayers other than the Holy Trinity. How are we in communion with the souls in purgatory? I'd better say something about purgatory first. When we die, if we're completely ready to go to heaven, then we go straight to heaven. If we've done penance in this life sufficiently, or if we've lived holy enough lives, we go straight to heaven when we die. And if when we die, which God forbid, we've just rejected God completely, completely, then we go straight to hell. But supposing a person has loved God, well, really loved God, but he hasn't been at all without sin. And he's not led all that good a life. Well, say, like most of us, perhaps. And then we come to die. Are we ready to go to heaven when we know that nothing defiled can enter heaven? Supposing a boy is kicking a ball around and the father says, hey, you stop that, you'll break a window. And the boy goes on doing it. And he breaks a window, and the father is very angry. And the boy is very sorry, and asks his father's pardon. And the father says, all right, I forgive you, but uh, no pocket money for six weeks till you pay for the window. The guilt is forgiven, but there's a certain amount of punishment still due. And when we die, God may have forgiven us all our sins, but we may not yet be ready to go to heaven. And that's what purgatory is for. It prepares us for entry to heaven. And from the beginning of the church, it's been realized that our prayers can help people who've died. No need to help the people in heaven. They've got everything. No possibility of helping the people in hell. And so the fact that the church has always prayed for people who've died shows that she realizes that they can be helped and that purgatory does exist. I'll just read the answers. How are we in communion with the souls in purgatory? We are in communion with the souls in purgatory by helping them with our prayers and good works. It's a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they, that they may be loosed from their sins. These footnotes at the bottom, they come from the Bible. That one here, it comes from the Old Testament. Second book of Maccabees, you could look it up. What is purgatory? Purgatory is a place where souls suffer for a time after death on account of their sins. What souls go to purgatory? Those souls go to purgatory that depart this life in venial sin or that have not fully paid the debt of temporal punishment due to those sins of which the guilt has been forgiven. What is temporal punishment? Temporal punishment is punishment which will have an end either in this world or in the world to come. How do you prove that there is a purgatory? I prove that there's a purgatory from the constant teaching of the Church and from the doctrine of Holy Scripture which declares that God will, will render to every man according to his works, that nothing defiled shall enter heaven, and that some will be saved, yet so as by fire. We now come on to the tenth article of the Creed. Question 110. What's the tenth article of the Creed? The tenth article of the Creed is the forgiveness of sins. What do you mean by the forgiveness of sins? By the forgiveness of sins, I mean that Christ has left the power of forgiving sins to the pastors of his church. Well, since our blessed Lord came to this world to free us from our sins, since it's only our sins which keep us from God, 
it's to be expected that our Lord would leave with his church some means of coping with sin. By what means are sins forgiven? Sins are forgiven principally by the sacraments of baptism and penance. We'll be doing uh, confession later, we'll be doing baptism later. We're going, for the time being, we're just thinking about what sin is. What is sin? Sin is an offence against God by any thought, word, deed or omission against the law of God. Well, it's a help to realise that sin is something against our nature in a way. We see laws at work in this world, physical laws, law of gravity and so on. Well, for us human beings there are also moral laws. Physical laws flow from the nature of things. Fire burns. Moral laws flow from the nature of things too. There's a law of gravity. There's a law of truthfulness, of honesty, of chastity, of mutual love, law of honouring one's parents. We're made to do these things. And when we disregard these laws, then we get damaged because we're doing something which is against our nature. The laws flow from what the thing is. And in a way, you can look on the Ten Commandments as being a sort of handbook that God gives us. Like if you get a car or something, they give you a handbook. The makers, who know how the thing is put together, tell you what you should do to get the best out of the car. And they might say in the handbook, Thou shalt not try to run this car without oil in the gearbox. Not trying to make things difficult for you, sort of involve you in extra expense, but they just know that if you try to run the car without oil in the gearbox, sooner or later they'll, it'll pack up. And if God says to us that we have to be truthful and chaste and avoid hating and killing people, God knows that if we, if we break these laws of our nature, we'll suffer. We don't intend to suffer, we just tend to enjoy ourselves, but uh, I remember during the war now, when we were in these prison of war camps, we got no Red Cross parcels. And then when the end of the war came, the Red Cross parcels came in, and one poor man died, he hadn't been really ill, and they had a post-mortem, and they found in his stomach a pound and a half of undigested cheese. Well, that poor man. You see, we had no cheese at all. And maybe that man loved cheese, perhaps he used to dream about cheese and wake up with his mouth watering. And then the Red Cross parcels came in, he got a tin of cheese all to himself, and his big moment had come, and he went away somewhere and scoffed a lot. It was just too much for him. He died. He didn't mean to damage himself, he just meant to enjoy himself. But by disregarding a basic law of health, he killed himself. I remember talking to a woman who had been living for twenty years in adultery. And she was standing up there crying, and her whole life was somehow falling to pieces now. She was in great distress, and she was standing up there and crying and telling me all about it, and I was trying to sort of sympathize, but all the time I couldn't help thinking to myself, what can she expect? For twenty years, 
She's been driving a coach and four through the ten compartments, thinking she can get away with it. We can't. These things are basic to our whole nature. If I hate somebody, then it's myself I damage. I remember meeting a man, I had to go to hospital for a sort of check-up, and I met a man who had been in, in the prison camp, and he was telling me how he hated the Japanese, and how he'd met a couple of Japanese girls on a bus not long before, and how much pleasure he'd taken in insulting them. And this poor man, his kidneys or his liver or something were completely all hardened up and, and damaged. And I thought to myself, which came first? his damaged kidneys, or the hatred in his heart. And I thought to myself, very likely, if you just hate somebody, you're bound to get ill, because it's just against our nature to hate. We're made to love. So it's a good thing to realize that sin, quite apart from offending God or injuring our neighbor, it's something which is against our own nature. So when people say to you, with regard to pilfering or, or unchastity, they, they say, well, why not be natural? You have to say, well, what nature are we talking about? If I were made of asbestos, I could put my hand in the fire and it wouldn't hurt me. But being flesh and blood, it damages me. If I were a fox, stealing wouldn't damage me. But being a human being, it damages me. We're dealing with human nature. And the Ten Commandments tell us what we need to do in order to live happily and well and sort of fulfill our, our purpose in life. Let's go on to talk about sin. How many kinds of sin are there? There are two kinds of sin, original sin and actual sin. What's original sin? Original sin is that guilt and stain of sin which we inherit from Adam, who is the origin and head of all mankind. What was the sin committed by Adam? The sin committed by Adam was the sin of disobedience when he ate the forbidden fruit. Now, those first chapters of Genesis, they're not meant to be taken as strict history, nor as strict science. They're theology, if you like. Obviously, we don't believe that God made the world in six days. I mean, how can you have a day before you have the sun, anyhow, as St. Augustine pointed out long ago? No, those first chapters of Genesis tell us one or two things about God, or tell the Jews, and so us as well, one or two things about God, which otherwise they couldn't have guessed. First of all, there's only one God. Not two gods, one God who made light, one God who made darkness, or one God who made spiritual beings, one God who made material things, or one good God, one bad God. The neighbors of the Jews believe some of these things, but... Genesis tells us, no, there's only one God, and he's good. And again, it tells us that the sun and the moon and the stars and crocodiles and things, they're not lesser deities, as some of the neighbors of the Jews believed. No, they're creatures, and that we, human beings, we're the crown of God's creation. And again, Genesis tells us that men and women are equal, and women aren't the property of men, sort of second-rate human beings, as some of the neighbors of the Jews believed. Genesis also tells us that we were originally made in God's friendship. 
and that our first parents sinned by some sin of disobedience, and that this lost for them and for their descendants special gifts that God had endowed them with. It is as if a king might take some laborer, some working man, with a big family, might invite him into his palace to become his adopted son. And so this laborer becomes a prince, and his children will be princes and princesses. And then this laborer, turned prince, takes part in some revolution that's going on, and is detected, and he's thrown out, thrown back to the street, and his children will no longer be princes, but simply the children of a laborer. God wanted us to be more than merely human. But because of the sin of our first parents, we are born merely human. And with tendencies in us towards rebellion against God. This is what we call concupiscence, the effects of original sin. It's like driving a car with one of the front tires half flat. There's a constant tendency to sort of pull the car over into the gutter. You can keep the car going straight, but it takes a constant effort. And in us, there's something which tends to drag us down into the gutter. And it takes a constant effort to keep ourselves straight. We're tempted to be proud and to give way to our instincts when we know that these are not according to God's will. And so to keep straight, to keep going, living according to God's holy will, this does take an effort, and these are the effects of original sin. Have all mankind contracted the guilt and stain of original sin? All mankind have contracted the guilt and stain of original sin, except the Blessed Virgin, who through the merits of her divine Son was conceived without the least guilt or stain of original sin. What's this privilege of the Blessed Virgin called? This privilege of the Blessed Virgin is called the Immaculate Conception. And so we say that our Blessed Lady was never merely human. As soon as she was conceived in her mother's womb, incidentally, Immaculate Conception does not mean virgin birth. The virgin birth means that our Blessed Lord was born of a mother who was a virgin, that his conception was miraculous. The Immaculate Conception means that our Blessed Lady, conceived in the ordinary way, from the first moment of her existence, was living this share in the divine life that we get when we're baptized. She was never in any way under Satan's power. Satan, our Lord called him the Prince of this world, has a certain power over people who are not in Christ, who are not living as God's friends. And so when we are born, in some way we are sort of born in his kingdom, as St. Paul says. And it's baptism which places us in Christ. Well, our Blessed Lady was always living the share in the divine life. So that's original sin. Now actual sin. What is actual sin? Actual sin is every sin which we ourselves commit. How is actual sin divided? Actual sin is divided into mortal sin and venial sin. What's mortal sin? Mortal sin is a serious offense against God. Why is it called mortal? It's called mortal sin because it's so serious that it kills the soul and deserves hell. 
This life of grace that we have, this divine life, is caused by the indwelling pre presence of the Holy Trinity. And serious sin drives away the Holy Trinity. The heart of sin is that it's a failure to love God. And every sin ultimately implies that I've chosen be between God and myself. I put myself first and God second. If my conscience uttered no word, well, I've not sinned. But if I realize that I've sinned, then I've admitted that there was this choice. It's not that I wanted to displease God. I just didn't want to displease myself. I preferred myself to God. And this is rebellion. And this can drive God away. The prodigal son didn't want to displease his father. He just wanted to enjoy himself. And so there are sins that completely rupture my relationship with God. We call that a mortal sin. Maybe if you think of the word deadly, that might make it a bit easier to understand. I mean, there are some poisons that are deadly poisons. Other poisons that just upset you, but wouldn't actually kill you. But there are some poisons that are deadly poisons. And the Church tells us there are some sins which kill. Some are deadly. What are they? I'll just go through them quickly. Any sin that's really against God. If a person went in for witchcraft or really try to insult God, or really try to shut God out of his life, obviously that's lethal. Then again, if people behave very badly against their parents, we have such a duty to honor and love our parents. This could be lethal. Then again, murder, of course, murder, hatred, abortion, comes under the heading of murder. These things, the Church says, kill the soul. Unchastity. Uh, sins uh, using sex in the wrong way the church says look out these are deadly sins they'll break your relationship with God sins of stealing to go on the bus without getting a ticket it's a sin but it's not uh, well I mean it can be a sin if I do it deliberately but it uh, it wouldn't kill the soul but if I've got a, a weekend job say and every week I pinch two pounds out of the till. Well, that adds up. The church says, look out, that's deadly. If you keep that up, you'll be killing this life of grace in your soul, driving God away. And so there are some sins that do kill. How does mortal sin kill the soul? Mortal sin kills the soul by depriving of sanctifying grace, which is the supernatural life of the soul. As I say, it drives out God. Is it a great evil to fall into mortal sin? It's the greatest of all evils to fall into mortal sin. I knew a brother, a religious brother. He was one of the brothers of St. John of God. Brother Victor, his name. He came from France, from Brittany. I suppose he's dead now. He was an old man 20 years ago. And he said that he remembered very distinctly the first time he told a lie. He was a little boy. They lived on a farm. And his mother took his clothes off and carried him out and put him down in a bed of nettles. <laughs> Ghastly. But I suppose she just wanted to impress on him that sin is something terrible. And a lie is a sin. St. Blanche said to her son, St. Louis, who was king of France, when he was a child, she said, I love you with all my heart. But I'd rather see you dead at my feet than think that you were going to commit a mortal sin. And so... 
sin, it is something very evil. And the fact that we don't have enough hatred of it is one of the effects of sin, because sin has the effect of dulling our understanding and weakening our will. Every time I commit a sin, I can somehow prepare myself for the next sin because my conscience has got a bit more opaque, a bit blunted, and my will has got weakened. And if I keep on sinning, ultimately my conscience can get turned right round. A priest told me he was giving a retreat in a boys' school, and one of the boys came up to him and asked him how it was when he was passing these shops where things were put out on the counter out on the street. He said, I hear a little voice inside me saying, go on, nick it. His conscience somehow, by giving way to stealing, I suppose, somehow his conscience told him that he should do these things. And if a man all his life had been swindling and got very rich through swindling, and now there's a chance of doing the insurance company out of £10,000, simply by telling a lie on the claim, his conscience would tell him, you've got to get that money. It would be against his conscience to tell the truth. And yet it's a sin, and a deadly sin. It's terrifying that by our sins we can somehow become quite blind to reality. And that is one of the ghastly effects of sin. But I think that's a good place to end, really. So we'll start next time. Remember to say some prayers tonight to talk to God. God bless you.